Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you are listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that has devoted an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss Walken's Syndrome from the 1993 album In on the Kill Taker is the world's leading expert on the album, the first guest in this series, and now the last, Joe Gross. Joe, what's new? How are you doing? Hey, man. How are you? I'm good. It's good to hear. It's I, I can't believe we're here, but... Uh, yeah, it's, it's wild. It's the last Fugazi song alphabetically. I feel I, like at the end of all this, I'm almost your peer as a Fugazi scholar. I have learned a lot. Uh, and really, anyone who's listened to this entire podcast is too, because almost everything I've learned, I've immediately shared with the listeners. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool to have you as uh, as bookending this series. Well, thank you so much. And any new developments with you in the Fugazi realm or otherwise since we last oh, spoke? Oh, uh, you know, nothing, uh, nothing Fugazi related, I'm afraid. Uh, just, you know, plugging along like everybody else, trying not to get sick. Because that's, that's getting real old. Yeah, I had hoped to be wrapping this up in a significantly better world in that regard. But uh, yeah. alas, it looks like we are uh, <laughs> looks nope. like we're <laughs> heading into another uh, peak rather than a yeah. trough of this. So, oh well. Not great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, now we get to uh, talk about something that happened uh, decades earlier, and that's much more fun. Yeah, let's let's all just pretend it's the 90s for a second. And yeah, yeah uh, let's talk about Walken's syndrome. Of course, yeah, for people who uh, haven't listened before and are, aren't familiar with Joe Gross, he wrote the book in the 33 and a third series uh, on In on the Kill Taker. And of course, I have some quotes at the ready uh, from the, the little uh, chapter on Walken's syndrome. But, you know, Joe, if, if you want to say in your own words as we go what you learned, that that's totally fine, sure. too. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. But yeah, uh, as far as introducing the song, yeah, I, I know that you learned a few things about sort of the, the genesis of it and, and what was written about it. Do you care to summarize? I mean, it's, it's an interesting song in that it's actually two little, it's two pieces of music plugged together. The first part of the song is about 25, 30 seconds of distortion that the band originally called chimps as in more than one chimp right <laughs> uh, because that is that is what it sounds like it uh it's a bunch of distortion that sounds like um you know chimps yelling at each other and it was a link track originally they Fugazi would occasionally do these little bits of music that you know could have been the beginnings of songs these little just sort of you know, pieces of, of riffs that didn't completely go anywhere, but they would occasionally drop them into, uh, drop them into albums. Uh, they were mostly stuff that they, because Fugazi rehearsed so much, there were always little bits of music that hadn't really gone anywhere that they would occasionally, uh, grab and, uh, develop into full songs, or maybe they wouldn't, or in this case, it was, you know, a link track, uh, called chimps. And ultimately the, like, if you look on the master tape, uh, it says chimps before walk syndrome. And then they ultimately just decided to 
make it part of the song. It's sort of blowing my mind trying to figure out how they made those sounds. There's a lot that is clearly recognizable as electronic noise, right? It, uh-huh. it, it's like it sounds like if you're playing guitar and you have the sort of the cable unplugged from your guitar, there's this buzzing sound, and if you sort of like touch the cable, it's making sounds. So it sort of reminds me of that. Um, but then, like, there are parts where it sounds so much like a screaming chimp that that it really fools your brain. And then there are parts sort of in between where it's it's like sort of going from something recognizable to that, and it really sort of messes with my sense of reality. So, uh, like, yeah, primo noise making there. It's pretty wild. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure how they made that sound, but it's a you know it's a it's just a wonderful bit of futzing around and you know that's that's what they did a lot they did a lot of uh futzing around in the studio a lot of it turned into some really interesting music we we are recording this in january 2022 and i i bet that you're like me a little joe gross in that um the beatles documentary get back is sort of like large in your mind uh right now and like i i keep thinking about fugazi in those terms like first of all what i wouldn't give to like have just that kind of documentary about just like hours of footage of them making an album and and just and it sort of just makes me imagine like trying to put my mind with them like in the studio or in the rehearsal room just messing around and imagining how they come up with something like that it's it's fun yeah it's very i mean it's it's really interesting stuff to see i mean i haven't talked to either of the uh two serious beatles nerds in the band about the documentary yet but i'd be very curious to see what they think about the whole thing um you know ian and ian and gee are very big beatles fans and detailed beatles fans and um, that film, you know, uh, the thing about that movie that's so remarkable is that I'm not even much of a Beatles lunatic uh, the way a lot of my friends are. And but, you know, I'm I'm in a I'm an American fan of, of rock music of a certain age. And so, you know, I stared at every frame and was absolutely hypnotized, even by the boring stuff. It was just an astonishing document. And yeah, seeing them in, seeing them rehearsing would be would be fascinating because so much of the Fugazi story is them rehearsing. Um, you know, the irony of of writing a book about one of their records is that. You know, for a lot of their career, especially at the beginning, the records were secondary to writing and playing live. And, you know, writing, rehearsing, playing live, and then came records. And they, you know, unless something has changed drastically since I talked to them at length about that, I think all four of them would freely admit that. And uh, so, yeah, seeing them rehearse would be absolutely fascinating. And I think the the closest thing we have to that is something like instrument, both the film and the soundtrack, where you get to hear all of these little bits that they are futzing around with. Yeah, Um, that's uh, yeah, that's fascinating. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say that um, given Fugazi's priorities, like chimps is probably something that you would not get if they had like the goal of, all right, we need to make a record. We have to have a few hit singles. Let's get in there. Let's write some songs. Let's do this. But, you know, then again, looking at that documentary and like how uh, the track Dig It came about from the Beatles, that was just them yeah. sort of messing around uh, during like in between, you know, quote unquote, serious work. So I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I'm sure they're, you know, very powerful songs that came from, you know, places where we just have no idea, you know, that they just, you know, I think it's, I think it was Jim Dickinson. I, I, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but the songwriter and studio musician and producer, Jim Dickinson uh, from Memphis said, you know, there's really, he said something along the lines of there's absolutely nothing better in the studio than a happy accident yeah and, um you know i don't i think he recorded records very differently from the band or ted nicely or don Ziantara. um you know they went in for the most part pretty well rehearsed as as far as i can can tell but um you know i'm sure there were happy accidents in the rehearsal room all the time moving on to the song proper you know, obviously, the the title, as as you discuss in the book, is a reference. You know, it's the song is not about that, but it is a reference to uh, the film Annie Hall. Yeah, the title is a reference to the scene in Annie Hall where Woody Allen's character talks to um, Annie's brother, played by Christopher Walken, where he, who's obviously kind of disturbed and um, in a way that only Christopher Walken can be. <laughs> Uh, and talks about driving into headlights uh, in front of him. I will um, uh, I will link a YouTube clip of this, but uh, for people who haven't seen the movie and aren't going to bother, yeah, Woody Allen comes into the the like walks by the bedroom of this uh, Annie's brother, who's like a grown man at this point, Christopher Walken. He he says he beckons him in there and says, "Can I confess something? I tell you this as an artist. I think you'll understand. Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night." I see two headlights coming toward me, fast. I have this sudden impulse to turn the wheel quickly, head-on, into the oncoming car. I can anticipate the explosion, the sound of shattering glass, the flames rising out of the flowing gasoline. And, uh, of of course, the punchline to that scene is later, uh, Christopher Walken's character has to drive uh, Woody and Annie home. Just just a shot of... Woody Allen looking terrified as he like, speeds through terrified, the night. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> memorable scene. Uh, yeah, good old, good old Dwayne. Um, right, Dwayne. Dwayne Hall. <laughs> but it's also an example of be careful what you call your song. The Walken Syndrome is a great title, but there's sort of two weird after effects of of doing that. Uh, one, it's you know it associates the song with Annie Hall by, you know, a film directed by Woody Allen, a, a since disgraced and controversial figure, uh, for, you know, unsavory and possibly criminal reasons. And, uh, once you pair it with Casavetes, there's suddenly this movie thing, uh, as Guy put it in, in an interview, going on and i mean i remember having that impression uh when i i bought the record and, and played it was just like huh like 
are these guys like what is the what's, what's the film <laughs> thing going on here like um you know if if they had you know if they had called the song if he had called the song like weird car accident or something <laughs> like that uh you know nobody would have been the wiser and yeah. um uh you know would have been totally fine I will say for me, when I discovered Fugazi like in high school, I, I'm pretty sure I had not seen uh, Annie Hall, and I had no idea about Cassavetes. So without that context, I will just say that Walken Syndrome always just seemed like a very cool title to me. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. And, um, you know, as I've, I've, I've got the quote in front of me from, from the book. Uh the songs about both a traumatic car accident I was in when I was a kid and about falling asleep at a stoplight, which is something I did once. I wanted to write about a specific thing, and Walking Syndrome seemed like a cool title at the time. But man, I really regret it, because both Woody Allen is a pig and the fact that, as I said earlier, you pair with Casavetes, and somebody have got a whole lot of reviews saying, what's up with this movie thing? Right. Um, and yeah, it's... It's... It's it's a good song and I enjoy it, but you know, on the, I mean, it's a great riff. Um, it's very vicious sounding that that intro riff that Guy plays. There's something about it that's really visceral. Oh yeah, no, it's a it's a great great part. Um, but it's also one of those songs that I'm like, you know, if this is. Uh, if this was not um, on, you know, if this was not on any particular records, or if this was eliminated from the record, I'm not terribly sure I would miss it. That being said, they did play it a lot for a while there. Yeah, I looked it up. It seems like it's like right smack in the middle uh, in terms of frequency of songs played live, like right in the middle of the list. Yeah, when and. In my experience, looking through that list for research or whatever, stuff in the middle tends to be songs that were out, songs that were new on a recently released record that were not uh, necessarily well-known by the audience yet. Yeah. If you, you look at the, the live series, they play it uh, for their sort of warm-up shows in, in fall of 92 when they're working out a lot of that material, a lot of that Killtaker material. And then they play it all the time in 93 and play it a lot in 95. And then it sort of, you know, they played some, and but on the whole, after 95, it's, you know, maybe 15, 20 more times tops, and that's kind of it. Um, I mean, it's there, but it's not a constant. And, I mean, in fairness, it was played uh, near the very end of, of their... Uh, of their their life is a live band um they played it in bristol um in yeah. 2002 I th it was like their fourth to last show they they played it for the last time or something yeah. like that and, th and that was it um so you know it was around for the song was around in public for about 10 years but not terribly frequently after 93 and the 93 dates and the 95 dates
Um, it's not like, it's not something they, they were like, the, the audience was screaming for, like, waiting room or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a good song. It does a little bit fade into the background. Um, in, in particular, I think overall, I was as I was listening, I was like, you know what, this the whole thing really sounds very similar to Downed City from Red Medicine to me. Mm. Just really yes. sort of similar sound and vibe there. Yeah, same same sort of uh, approach, and um, yeah, and uh, it's you know they're both you know they're both real short, real you know real quick, fast, um, uh, gee, you know punk songs, and uh, with that sort of velocity. Yeah, but it's you know again if it if it was suddenly you know, it's it's the song that I ended up writing the least about in the book um, because it was uh, it just it was a song that just didn't um, you know. There's it, it's it's fine, but there's a lot on that record that's a lot more interesting and um, yeah, uh, that that was just more. More fun to explore, more fun to talk about. Yeah, I get that. Uh, well, to, to dig into what I can, at least music-wise, uh, I, I, I have to give props to Brendan in particular on this one. Uh, there's some really nice drum fills, you know, including like oh, right yeah, totally. to take us in right after the guitar intro. Something else I like that he does is um, two places in the song when Guy is singing red, dressed in red, drenched in red, um, on those like two bars he's playing he's doing that thing where he plays the snare on every quarter note yeah which i guess some people call the motown four because like when you think about it there's some of those classic motown songs it's like and uh so i he does it there and then he like there's the chorus and then he does it again in uh scars crash and glass made etc uh, and those yeah. are the only two times in the song. So it's not like something he repeats in every stanza. So I, I like how he sort of changes it up like that and gives us a little extra a little extra something uh, that's interesting to the ear. Well, if I recall correctly, the riffs on the verse, the verses, uh, are riffs that Brendan brought in. Again, Brendan wrote a lot more than than people. I mean, I think that's that's a that's a, a theme of um of the book and of you know just thinking about their music in general was that like you know just because brendan was was the drummer didn't mean that he didn't uh he contributed a fair number of you know guitar parts yeah um you know he's he's one of those guys that can play all sorts of stuff and um so the verse riffs are him and the chorus riff started with gee and so it's very much a group, uh, a very much a group effort. Um, as, as I mean, ultimately, as uh, uh, most of their songs were. Uh, but yeah, I can see that Brendan would, you know, maybe maybe he already had a, a drum part in mind um, for for those for those riffs. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, but yeah, his his playing on that is is fabulous. But you know, it's always fabulous. <laughs> it guys, really is. The guy's astounding. Um, you know, it's the one thing that is hard to, uh, not not the only thing, but it's one of the things that's really hard to replicate if 
you're a band that wants to sound like Fugazi. And for a while there, there were a lot of them. <laughs> but the thing they couldn't mimic was was Brendan and his sense of time um, was uh, unique. And what he brought to that band made them completely different from any other band playing music that sounded remotely like that. That sounds like a really good analysis to me. I <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, try being a band as good as Fugazi without having a Brendan Canty. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, we're, we're just trying to sound like them. It just won't. It doesn't. It doesn't work. I mean, every time I've you know been told, oh yeah, these guys sound a lot like Fugazi. Um, <laughs> you know, every, I mean, I mean, literally every single time, I. You know, I listen to the song and it's like, well, all right, that's an SG plugged into a Marshall. And, you know, maybe it's two SGs plugged into a Marshall on a park or whatever. But you don't have, you don't have Brendan. And you don't have that, you know, you, know, you never know when a ghost note is going to come in. <laughs> and especially live. And, uh, you know, that, that's amazing stuff. Speaking of the the sort of sense of time, I guess this relates to that, but something I do admire about the song is that in the chorus, uh, Guy's singing on, on, past, gone, etc., there's, you know, a couple of things combined to make it like suddenly a space where you have like a little breath of air after the sort of viciousness of the verses, like... He's yeah. there's there's long sustaining notes instead of this constant riffing, uh, even though like one guitar is doing long sustaining notes, the other is sort of chugging along, but in a more subdued way. And then, of course, Guy's singing this uh, thing that he's he's echoing his own vocals doing this um, thing that sort of pans across the stereo field on, uh -huh. on, on. So all of a sudden, it's just like you get a little bit more of a sense of three-dimensionality, you get space to breathe, uh, and it really just changes up the song, which is nice. Yeah. E you know, even a little bit of, of, of echo and reverb can add a tremendous amount of space to something that's even, even that short. Uh, and it works. Yeah, it does work really well, especially with the sort of car accident. Yeah idea you know there's that that moment where time you know when you're in in crisis or in a physical crisis or something when time slows down and that conveys that incredibly well i think that's really interesting i hadn't thought of that you know i was listening to the albini uh version of this and there's some songs on that where i think like this is in its own way as good, maybe even better than the version on In on the Kill Taker. With Walking Syndrome, I think this is one of the cases where it's like clearly inferior on the Albini version. It's sort of like slower, muffled. Uh, Guy's vocal performance isn't as good. But one thing I really like is, uh, and listeners, I, I encourage you to listen back to this, is when Guy does those echoing vocals, there's like a ton of distortion on them. And the, the effect is very different. And I, it's, it's very cool. I think I might like it better than the album version i'm not i'm not totally sure yeah i mean that's the thing about about that band is there's always you know they uh you know they're always futzing around with stuff live and you know their sound guys were 
you know, especially on some songs, you know, their live sound guys were part of the process, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, it wasn't a set the levels and forget it. Yeah. Um, yeah, of, of course we, we spoke to Nick Pellicciotto, uh, you know, several episodes back and that, that was really revelatory to me. I, I guess I had not thought as much, uh, before that about how much the sound guys were doing. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that was something that was done live, like, um, a, any distortion on vocals. I can't remember uh, hearing that. I honestly don't know. Yeah. Either way, um, cool element of performance. Something that I like performance-wise also that ends up on the final cut is Guy's sort of like My Generation-esque. Uh, the last time he sings Fragile Stem, he does a fragile stem. Very nice choice. Yeah. There's definitely a mod uh, in that man somewhere. <laughs> well, let's let's dig into the lyrics a little bit here. As you said, it's about... He said it's about a traumatic car accident he was in and about falling asleep at a stoplight. I don't know if either of those things has happened to you. Um, I've had a couple of near misses. In college, my last year of college, I was a student teacher uh, in high school. So what what this entailed was like getting up early and driving like, I don't know, 45 minutes to be at a high school when high school starts, which like, I don't know, 7.30, in the morning. Um, and then driving back, going to my college classes and, uh, you know, on occasion doing the things that college kids do at night. So I was extremely tired and I came very close to falling asleep at the wheel, driving home from uh, student teaching one day that was memorable and scary. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, other than that, I haven't been in anything too traumatic. Um, I, don't uh, you know i have been in one serious car accident that did not result in any injury thank god to anyone um i've been in a couple of fender benders um over the you know 30 years i've been driving or whatever um but nothing too terrible falling asleep at a stoplight i've don't think I've ever done. I have been very drowsy driving and looking back on it. Um, you know, I'm extremely lucky nothing happened, but I think that happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but you're like, Oh, I really shouldn't have done that. That was idiotic. Absolutely. Um, but no, my, uh, my trauma with cars has been limited. Knock on wood. Yeah. And listening to this song, reading the lyrics, I can't, it's very morbid, but I can't help wondering if, like, Guy saw somebody die, given red dressed in red, drenched in red, and, like, just how, you know, we've been talking in this whole podcast about his sort of, like, fascination and, like, disgusted fascination with the human body and its frailty, and that sort of comes to a head here in Walken Syndrome. He seems to be talking about, like, a, you know, fragile stem, I I read that as a human body and how uh, how a traumatic car accident can just lay bare how fragile we really are. Uh, it's interesting. Guy, you know, in this chapter, um, Guy, uh, uh, 
I mean, when I when I wrote this when I wrote this chapter in the book, this is where Guy I put in how reluctant he was to discuss his lyrics, um, and you know, pressing him on it uh, was not, you know, was kind of pointless after a while. Um, I mean, he was a wonderful interview. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's a lot. You know, he. I'll just read you the quote. You know, he I, he said something about hating to discuss lyrics. Um, quote, I've tried to get a better attitude about it, but I just hate it. I think a lot of why I hate talking about lyrics so much has to do with the process of doing it. Things have enormous resonance to me, and when I write lyrics, I'm depleting my own store of connections. When I talk about them, I'm not seeding anyone else's in a way that's positive, so it seems like a lose-lose for everybody. Doing a post-mortem on them makes me feel indecent. Which I understand if you're writing about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're, when you're writing, uh, you know, when you're writing lyrics, uh, it's, you know, you're accessing a very specific part of, of the way you write. And, you know, at the end of the day, only the writer really knows what they're about. And even they might not. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it, it's tough. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he just saw a grievous injury. Um, I don't know, but there's, you know, it's, it's pretty traumatic. Uh, car accidents are traumatic things. Yeah. Um, my, uh, I, I may have mentioned this before. My father, his whole career, um, basically worked at the, uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in uh, the Department of Transportation in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was always very drilled into us to, you know, wear seat belts. Drinking and driving was the worst thing you could do. It, it's just something that was inculcated into me from a very young age. And uh, I, I very much appreciate the the sort of awesome, destructive power of cars and, and Guy's ex- particular experience, I, I wouldn't even care to press him on it. I can, like, that's not something I would want to really ask someone about in this particular sure. song. And it's very, it's a very armchair psychology thing of me to even bring up, I guess. But, uh, you know, it's it's something I can't help wondering. So I just thought I'd of throw course. it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting stuff. But again, I think this also points to the fact that in the in the uh, the Fugazi catalog, it's kind of a minor work. It's you know it's fine. It's it's a perfectly fine song, and I certainly enjoy hearing it live. But um, you know, as as I as I said in the book, it's very much a middle of side two kind of song, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and then the songs that follow it are um, so astounding that it's, you know, it's kind of easy to forget it's there sometimes because it's sort of this speedy thing before instrument, which is, you know, a masterpiece and last chance for a slow dance, which is, you know, clearly a profoundly personal song that is, um, you know, kind of a remarkable way to end that record. And that it's it's interesting because I think that something that Fugazi taught us, and I like, I guess by us, I mean, you know, the world of alternative, like especially punk rock listeners, 
you know, coming from bands like Minor Threat uh, to Fugazi was just the impact of slowing things down, uh, having slower songs, having slower parts within fast songs. And like, I guess that's a good example, like how, how much more memorable instruments and Last Chance for a Slow Dance are than this like sort of barn burner. Yeah, it's it's just the, those last two uh, are much more yeah. uh, weighty. Um, something else, though, uh, a, a last one, last way in which I sort of related to this song. You know, I, I was thinking about the Christopher Walken quotes and like that that sort of urge that he's describing to drive into an oncoming car. It made me think of this time when I was a kid. And uh, I was I was at the mall with my family. This would be Fair Oaks Mall in Northern Virginia, and it's like one of those two level malls. You know, the top level there's like, you know. Uh, oh sure, yeah. I know Fair Oaks. Yeah, yeah. So you can look over the railing and you see the the level below. And um, so I think we 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 were on the upper level. I feel like we were waiting for a table at a restaurant, probably Bennigan's. This was in the '90s at some point. And I had my Nintendo Game Boy with me, the like the first clunky that you know that big version, uh, which I which I loved. And so I'm I'm just sort of hanging out here, looking over the edge, and I got this sudden impulse to throw my beloved Game Boy over the edge and watch it like <laughs> shatter on the ground below. To the point where I asked my mom, I was like, "Can you hold this Game Boy for me, please? Like I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm literally afraid that I will throw it." I, I don't know. I was probably like in sixth grade or something. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know. But what that made me realize in relating to it that way is like, I, I think when you when you first listen to that uh, quote, see that scene in the movie, you think like, oh, this is suicidal tendencies. But it's not that. It's it's something different. Um, like, I, I think that urge, that like perverse sort of impulse you have sometimes is completely different and i looked into this a little and there's this sort of like psychological phenomenon called call of the void and uh it's it's been written a lot about online and um i i found a a interesting article that i'll i'll quote from a little which i think is really what is happening in that scene from annie hall um so uh, an article by aisha habib uh, documented by academics and philosophers alike, the call is not an indication of subliminal suicidal thoughts. That urge to leap off a cliff isn't a morbid fantasy, but actually a survival instinct. A 2012 study at uh, Florida State University, um, which coined the term high place phenomenon to describe the call of the void, found that people with higher levels of anxiety reported higher levels of HPP. To explain this, the study suggested that the urge to jump is a misinterpreted survival instinct. The brain instills a fear that one might jump off a cliff on purpose to tell the body not to jump off a cliff. It may seem counterintuitive, but perhaps it explains an evolutionary reason for anxiety. The urge to jump, the study declared, affirmed the urge to live. But the call of the void isn't limited to jumping off high places. It refers to any reckless impulse to do something self-destructive, swerve your car into the lane of traffic next to you, scream at the top of your lungs on a crowded bus... People are just as capable of doing bad things as they are of doing good ones. The difference is in the choices they make. And it's these endless choices, the decision to jump off a cliff, for example, that feed into an existential questioning of identity. When our identity hinges on the actions we take, the specific agency we have over corporeal movements feels all the more strangely infinite. We are inherently aware that we can easily jump off a cliff 
All it would take is a single step, and though we know we won't really do it, that freedom of choice is staggering. So, yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. I think that is a great... Um, I, I think that's a great way to describe what Dwayne Hall is dealing with in Annie Hall, but I don't necessarily think it's a great way of describing what Guy is talking about in terms of, you know, if this was a car accident, mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't intentional. Um, you know, falling asleep at a stoplight isn't intentional. Um, and that sort of points up why walk-in syndrome might be somewhat of a misnomer for that, for that song. But I think that that, I mean, the call of the void, I think is absolutely legit. I think it's a powerful, powerful idea. Um, and an important psychological, um, uh, you know, an important psychological concept. Um, do I think it necessarily applies to this song in the way that Guy described the lyrics to me? Not necessarily. Does it apply to the song in the, in a way that someone might imagine that the song is working? Yeah, sure. I don't see why not. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's I think that's totally viable, and that's you know, and I think that also reflects on what you know Guy said about not wanting to explain lyrics, like you know, or the the problem for him is that it serves neither party. He doesn't like to do it, and then the listener is robbed of thinking what the song is about. I mean, I think you know, something at least Ian has said to me, I recall is that it's, you know, it's, and I think it's interesting for all songwriters or philosophy songwriters for listener to hear what listeners think a song is about, whether it's correct or not. Um, you know, and you know, a songwriter is, is then has the chance to say like, wow, that's really interesting or wow, that's completely wrong. Or, wow, you nailed it. And that's sort of the three options. We're not saying anything at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it applies to what the song could be about. But I don't necessarily think it applies to what Guy says the song's about. Yeah, fair enough. And like a lot of Guy songs, it's just, it's rich with possibilities, basically. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Well, um, you've, you've said it's, it's sort of a minor work. Why don't we talk about our ratings? Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? For this song, and uh, yeah, at the very end, the final song, we'll try to, on a scale of one to five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog, say uh, what what we think of this as a Fugazi song. Um, how many stars would you give this one, Joe? I think it's a solid three. I was going to say the exact same thing. Right down the middle for me, it's a three. Yeah, I, you know, absolutely a three. Not um, not something that I think was, you know, shouldn't have gotten off the the starting blocks. But if it vanished from the record, I don't think I would miss it a tremendous amount. Let, let me go to our uh, our listeners on Facebook, see what they had to say. A few of those are uh, Ben Traub says, In the timeline of songs and releases, this sounds like the middle post-hardcore momentum and later era melodic experimentation not quite archetype but close um alan newman says my favorite fugazi song 
The intro with the pick scrape sounds like screeching tires. The Annie Hall reference, the cadence of Guy's lyrics when he says, Scars smashing glass made you laugh, show it off to your friends. Yeah, I, I didn't mention that, but that is a great cadence. It's one of these things Guy does sometimes. Um, I was just talking about this in a different episode, and I can't at this moment remember what I was thinking of, but all of a sudden you get that da 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 in, in, yeah. the, in just the tempo, the, the scansion of Guy's lyrics that uh, I really admire that too. Um, yeah, good pull. Rob yeah. Virginio says, Guy is just a beast lyrically in this song. Um, all of his yeahs and oohs and stretching out words is perfection to me. The opening guitar riff, it almost sounds like they're wailing away on banjos. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> James Vitito Absolutely. says, this song was the first song I saw Fugazi perform live. Uh, what a powerhouse opener. Left a permanent impression and made it my de facto favorite song for a long time. I think Guy is a little regretful of the link to Woody Allen, but that scene is a very iconic one and stands independent of Allen's personal failings. Lyrically, Guy spouts pure poetry, steer into the headlights like the dead light of the last sun you'll see. What a way to frame one's intentional demise by car wreck. Finally, Dan Tennant says, this is one of my favorites. I have to turn the volume down when I listen to it in my car and watch my speed. Musically, it captures the subject matter perfectly. That's a pretty good point, yeah. Yeah, no, it, uh, you know, it, it, it absolutely, it absolutely works. Um, it's just, and, uh, you know, I absolutely agree that Guy's cadence is great, but it's funny. I can't remember. I think it was Joe Lally when I talked to them that said, you know, we'd finish a song or we'd be working on a song and I'd think, where are the words going to fit? Like, <laughs> how are the words going to fit into this? And, um, you know, I think walking syndrome is a great example of, you know, Guy making the words fit really, really well. And, um, the, yeah, the way this, the, the way the lyrics are put together is terrific. Definitely. And, uh, I'd also speaking of our, uh, listeners, I'd like to give a shout out to Andy Pohl, uh, whose band Tsunami Bomb uh, recorded a cover of this for a tribute record. I'll throw a link oh, to wow. that in the show notes. Uh, it's it's a great cover. I like the interesting shimmery effects sort of near the end. So uh, good job on that, Andy. Uh, so those are our ratings, ours and the listeners. And um, Joe, do you have any plugs? this time uh what's going uh, on i am i am i am plug free at the moment but i am i am happy to let you know when i have things to plug <laughs> okay well folks that's about it that's every fugazi song we did it we talked about all of them uh finally <laughs> gave the respect that's due to the collected work of such a great band uh but don't don't unsubscribe from the podcast just yet i hope to have a couple more odds and ends coming your way soon so until then Keep your eyes open. This is my last